This is the word of the Lord. Please give it your full attention. So Abram went up from Egypt to the Negev. He and his wife and all that belonged to him and lot with him. Now Abram was very rich in livestock, in silver and in gold. He went on his journeys from the Negev as far as Bethel to the place where his tent had been at the beginning between Bethel and Ai to the place of the altar which he had made there formerly. And there Abram called on the name of the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. Our gracious God and Father, we come before you in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ, and in the strength and power of your Holy Spirit. And we do pray, Holy Spirit, that you would guide us this morning, that you would aid our hearing, our thinking, and our eyes, and Holy Spirit, even our feet. For as your word goes forth this morning, we pray that we would not be merely hearers of your word, but doers of your word. We pray, God, that you would help us to, as your word goes forth, be further sanctified from this world and more conformed to the image of the Son of God who loved us and gave himself up for us. Lord, I decrease that you may increase, be glorified in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Please be seated. Well, I do greet you again in the name of the Lord and welcome you on this Lord's Day Sabbath as we continue our study through the book of Genesis. Uh, I want to also commend uh, our brother uh, Bobby on his sermon last week, last uh, Lord's Day evening, and also Pastor Isaiah on his sermon Lord's Day morning. And I commend both of those sermons to you if you did not have the chance to to hear those sermons, I commend you to go back and hear them both. They are very, very um, excellent and precise. Uh, and so to God be the glory for faithful men who uh, are so diligent in their work in serving God and his people. When we last considered the book of Genesis, we learned of Abram's testing. Abram was tested by severe famine, thank you, that arose in the land of Canaan. God called Abram out of his country, his own country, to a land that would later be described as flowing with milk and honey. But at this point in the story, there is not only a famine, there is a severe famine in the land that God has promised to give to Abram and his descendants. Abram's faith, therefore, was put to the test. Abram's faith, therefore, was Uh, Put to the test, for Abram was forced to make a decision. Stay, believe the promises of God, endure the severe famine, believing that God will keep his promise, or allow his eyes and his feet to succumb to what he sees, severe famine, and leave. Though Abram be truly regenerate, though Abram be truly converted, Abram is not immune to the test of God, and his faith was not impenetrable. Abram chose the latter. He sought refuge in the land of Egypt, where his faith would once again be further tested by God. But before they enter the land of Egypt, Abram has both a concern and a plan. 
Let's look at chapter 12 and verse 11. It came about when he came near Egypt that he said to his wife, Sarai, see now, I know that you are a beautiful woman. And when the Egyptians see you, they will say, this is his wife and they will kill me, but they will let you live. Please say that you are my sister so that it may go well with me because of you and that I may live on account of you. Abram believed that he was in danger. Abram believed that if anyone found out that Sarai was his wife, they would kill him and take her as his wife, as their wife. God had promised, though, that Abram would be blessed by those who bless him and that Abram would also uh, be protected for God would curse those who cursed Abram. And yet when Abram enters into Egypt, he fails to believe the promise of God, that God will protect him, that God will bless him and bless those who bless him. And also that God would protect him, that God would curse those who cursed him. But rather than believing in the promise of God, Abram conjures up a lie. He convinces his wife, whom he was supposed to protect, to go along with this lie. He convinces her to lie. And when they enter the promised land of Egypt, or when they enter, I'm sorry, when they enter the land of Egypt, Sarai was noticed. And she was noticed by the officials of Pharaoh, of all people, who then brought her into his harem to be his wife, one of his wives. Going along with the lie and carrying on this charade, Abram receives many gifts from the king of Egypt as payment for his wife's hand in marriage. But it was not long before the house of Pharaoh began, began to be afflicted by God on account of Abram and Sarai. It was discovered that Sarai was married to Abram. So then the king of Pharaoh comes to Abram in verse 18 and says, why have you done this to me? What is this that you have done to me? Why did you not tell me that she was your wife? Why did you say she is my sister so that I, I took her as my wife? Now then. Imagine this. Here's your wife. Take her and go. From the lips of a pagan king, God rebukes Abram for his disbelief and lack of trust. Imagine a pagan rebuking Abram for lying. A non-believer rebuking the believer. Why are you lying? What a shame. Abram and his family are sent away. And they are sent away with gifts, but they are also sent away with shame. For not trusting in the promises of God. That God would and will do what he says he will do. And this is where we are now in this narrative. And now, with God's help today, we shall consider verses 1 through 4. Interestingly enough, verses 1 through 4 of the 13th chapter. And I have just three points for you today. And the first chapter, uh, just so that you have a forewarning, is the longest of the three points. Number one, repentance. In the believer's life. Number one, repentance in the believer's life. Notice verses one or verse one. So Abram went up from Egypt, went up from Egypt to the Negev. He and his wife and all that belonged to him and lot with him. Now, Abram was very rich in livestock in silver and in gold. He went on. His journey from the Negev as far as Bethel to the place where his tent had been at the beginning between Bethel and I. Now, as we read these verses before us today, they would appear to be meant as 
merely transitional. These verses today could be easily read over. Assuming that there is no real substance. But that the the substance or the meat is really found later on in the 13th chapter. Rather than what we see here in a man just traveling from one place to another. But upon closer inspection and with great patience. Lord willing, we shall see that there is much more taking place here in this passage than at first meets the eye. It is helpful for us to remember, or maybe possibly for the first time learn, that Hebrew narrative, the writers in Hebrew narratives, they usually don't include random, non-essential information or non-essential points. Meaning this, everything that we see in the text is important and purposeful. Now, in English literature, that which we are most often used to, it's quite the opposite. We may read of lengthy descriptions that paint pictures about what the sky looked like in that day, or what a person looked like, or what the colors of the trees were. But often, those descriptions have actually nothing to do with the narrative. They're just non-essential parts to the story. Hebrew literature, therefore, is, is much different, though. Hebrew literature rarely has anything like that that is non-essential. And especially in God's word, everything is essential. So when we receive what appears to be apparently random information, we must understand that it is not random. It's purposeful. It's intentional. Because all of scripture is God-breathed, is it not? Not just the red letters that we find in the gospels. Avoid the, the, the phrases, see, it's written in red. All of Scripture is written in red. All of Scripture is God-breathed. So when we come to this passage where Abram and his companions are traveling backward, we ought to start with the assumption that the Scriptures are doing more than just transitioning verses for us. What we have here in these four short, short verses in chapter 13 are concluding what we have just read in chapter 12, what we have just learned in chapter 12. This is a, a type of conclusion here with Abram and Sarai in Egypt and what we have discussed in our introduction. In our time of study, we must be careful not to make the mistake of believing that because this information is in a new chapter, that it is therefore disconnected from the chapter that came before it. Amen? Amen. In chapter 13 and verse 2, we are told that Abram was very rich in livestock, in silver and in gold. Very rich in livestock. It's, it's not obvious to us in the scripture. It's not obvious to us in the passage. But Hebrew, in Hebrew, the word rich of describing how rich Abram was is the same Hebrew word that describes the severity of the famine in the land of Canaan. Did you hear that? The severity that caused Adam or, or Abram to, to leave Canaan for Egypt. The Hebrew word for rich, Abram was very rich, is also translated as heavy. So then, we have gone from a heavy famine, severe famine, heavy famine, to now Abram being heavy with wealth. What's taking place then? There is a, a kind of type of reversal that's taking place here. And that is meant for us to take notice of. There is a reversal. 
a going back. It, it, it's most obviously found in the places that Abram is traveling to and the order in which he is in, in, and in the order in which they are mentioned. In chapter 13, verses 1 through 4, we are told that Abram goes from Egypt up to the Negev and then on to Bethel. And then we are specifically told that he goes to the place between Bethel and Ai, where he had previously been. Now, when the Lord first called Abram in chapter 12, we see that Abram follows God's call. And then when he finally does settle, he builds an altar and worships the Lord there. Abram has left all of those places because of the severe famine in the land. He's ran. He's sought refuge. And if we remember, those are the exact physical, geographical markers that are used to describe Abram's journey as he traveled southward. Now think of going down to escape the severe famine through the promised land and into Egypt. Abram has started off from the north of Israel and he's journeyed down into Ai and then down into the Negev. And then once again, and finally, all the way down into Egypt. This is found in chapter 12, verses 8 through 10. There is a a type of starting from the top, and then a progressive failing to believe God going down. Failing to trust in God going down. Lying and sinning going all the way down. Abram has reached the bottom, if you will, the very depths of his sin. And Egypt is to represent that. And now he's being allowed to leave Egypt. God has protected him while he was all the way down, while he was at the bottom, if you will, of his sin. God has protected Abram from the king of Egypt. And not only has God protected him from the king of Egypt, he's protected his wife. He's bringing Abram and his family out of Egypt, not poor, but now heavy with riches. He's not just left. He's been sent away by the king of Egypt. Remember that in verse uh, uh, 19b? Now then, here's your wife. Take her and go. Pharaoh commended, commanded his men concerning him, and they... They did what? They, they escorted him away with his wife and all that belonged to him. The Lord has kept his word. Even in the midst of Abram going down, down, down into sin, God has kept his word. God has protected him from the threat of danger, allowed him to attain wealth in Egypt, and even given him a police escort out of Egypt. When we come then, To the first verses of chapter 13, we must not see this as a man who's making a casual journey. He has been protected by God. He's made it out of Egypt with his life. God has kept his promises. And now Abram, who began in the north and went all the way down, down, down because of his sin, is being guided back by God. Where? All the way up, up and up, back to God. Where the promises of God are. Abram, as it were, retraces his steps of where he had been in Canaan 
And it is symbolic of Abram returning to God. Famine struck the land. And rather than trusting that God would be his refuge, Abram sought refuge outside of God in the land of Egypt. Abram did not trust that God would curse those who cursed him. As he entered Egypt, he feared for his life. He told lies. He should have laid down his life for his wife, but instead he convinced her to lay down his life for him. Abram has sinned in more ways than one. And there is a brutal honesty, isn't there, found in the scriptures. The Holy Spirit does not conceal from our eyes the sins and frailties of even the most prominent figures in the scriptures. This is one of the reasons why the scriptures are infallible, are reliable, are inerrant. For the scriptures do not only expose the weaknesses of men, but scripture also emphasizes, highlights the true marks of a true believer. Abram has sinned against God. He's not failed or he has failed in more ways than one. But brothers and sisters, Abram didn't stay in Egypt. He has sin and his sin has led him all the way down, down, down to Egypt. But he did not stay all the way down. By the grace of God, he was brought out of Egypt or out of his sin. And by the grace of God, God returned his elect, his sheep, his called out one. He returned him to himself. Amen. Abram was being drawn back to God, to the north, being drawn back to himself. And where does he ultimately settle after leaving uh, sin or leaving Egypt, if you will? Verse three, he went on his journeys from the Negev as far as Bethel to the place his tent had been at the beginning. Did you hear that? Where does he go? He goes as far as Bethel to the place his tent had been. Where? When? At the beginning. The beginning of what? The beginning of when he first called upon the name of the Lord. To the to where? Specifically to the altar. To the place of the altar which he had made there formerly. Where does he ultimately settle? All the way back. He comes home. If you can imagine in your mind, he's left Egypt, right? All the way from the south. And now he is passing the Negev. He, he has made it back to Bethel. What is Bethel? It literally means house of God. And while he is there, where does he go specifically? He returns to the altar, to the place of worship. It is there Abram renews his commitment to God, re renews his belief. In the promises of God, the Bible says in verse 4, And there Abram called upon the name of the Lord. That, that is significant. He's not just there. He's returning to the faith that he walked away from, but that was surely his. He's returning to the God. The, the God who says, you are mine and you shall never be snatched from my hand. In spite, no matter what sin may take you all the way down, 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 you are being brought back to me because you are mine. We all need to thank God for that. Brothers and sisters, the word repentance does not appear here in this text, but that is the very idea that is being communicated to us. Abram has left Egypt. And where is he going? He's going back. I don't know why I ever left you. I got to go back. 
Going back where? Going back to the place of worship. Returning to the altar of God. Returning to God himself. Abram is returning to God after having wandered away from him. He he is repenting of sin. And in these four verses, we find great encouragement for all believers. Because these verses show us that God preserves his people. That God keeps his people close to him. We may wander and we may think that we are far off. But we are never outside of the hand or reach of God. These verses show us that God mercifully pursues his own. Who are so often prone to wonder and mercifully places them back on the narrow road. Listen, brothers and sisters, this is important. Even after we sin and sin terribly, sin going all the way down, down, down to the very bottom to where we feel like we could get no lower. He still brings his sheep back to himself. Dear ones, we have all sinned in some way this week. We have given in to the lures of the world, the flesh and the devil. And yet, think about this. And yet you are here this morning. How? Why? God, who is rich in mercy, has made a promise to keep you. You who have trusted in his son, you are within the palm of his hand. Christ says, I give to them eternal life and they shall never perish. No one, no thing, no circumstance will be able to snatch them out of my hand. He says in John 10, 28, brothers and sisters, I don't know what your sin is. You don't know what my sin is. We've all committed it this week, maybe even today. But God knows your sin. And may I say to you on authority of God's holy inspired word that whatever that sin is for the believer who has truly and surely placed their faith in Christ alone, that sin cannot, will not be able to separate you from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. Whatever the sin, or that could be asked, whatever the sin, it is not permanently, nor has it irrevocably destroyed your union with Christ. If you are his, no matter the sin, it has not taken you so far off of the narrow road that there is no hope of bringing you back. Imagine, imagine being so far Uh, We will talk about this in a moment. 250 miles away from the place of worship. All the way down into pagan Egypt. And God has brought him back home. Isaiah 43, 25. I, even I, am the one who wipes out your transgressions for my sake. And he says, and I will not remember your sin. You remember your sin. But God has cast your sin as far as the east is from the west. You know your sin. It plagues you. But it does not plague God. He has promised to blot out your transgression and to remember it no more. When we place our faith in Christ truly. Know this. You will still wrestle against sin. Even so. I placed my faith in Christ. Yes, and you will still wrestle against the world, the flesh, and the devil. 
But God views us who have placed our faith in Christ as though we have not sinned. Do you hear that? We have, we who have placed our faith in Christ, God views us in spite of our wrestling, in spite of our toiling against the world, the flesh, and the devil. God views us who are in Christ as though we have never sinned. Not because we are in and of, our, in and of ourselves perfect, because, but because we are in Christ. And Christ has not sinned. And we are in Christ. Therefore, we in Christ have been made righteous and sinless before him. God not only welcomes those who have strayed, but God himself in Christ, through the Holy Spirit, he pursues us to bring us back to himself. When we sin, we are as that one sheep of the fold who has wandered off, who has gone astray. And God does not wait for you to come back and say, uh, they will return on their own time. When they're ready, they will come. Not at all. God leaves the 99 and then goes and pursues the one. And that one may be stubborn. He may and will bring the rod and the staff to bring them back. But if you are his, you will come back. God retrieves the sheep who have gone astray because they are his. Because they are his. God commands that we repent of sin. And he brings us back to himself. So that we may obey his commands and live in accordance to what he says for our lives. And there is hope for us in this passage, is there not? Abram is back in Canaan. Back at the altar that he has previously set up. Even after he's lied. Even after he has betrayed his wife. Even after he did not display absolute trust in God. Where is he now? Now we would look at each other and say, you don't, you don't deserve to be there. But thank God you and I are not Christ and we are not God. Where is he? He's at the altar of God. He is worshiping God. And I'm sure there is a greater laundry list of sins that are not at least mentioned for us here. But we also have a laundry list of sins. And where are you this morning? You are here worshiping God. Right before him. Repentance is one of those, one of the primary evidences of genuine faith. Repentance is a mark of faith. Repentance is so important that if we have not repented, then we cannot be saved. Repentance is a sign that you have been given new spiritual life. And if you've not repented, it is a sign that you have not been given new spiritual life. Repentance is a display of the grace of God in our lives. God does not make sinlessness or your own perfection as the sign of spiritual life in the believer. But rather, does that make sense? God does not look at you and say, yeah, you have been perfect. Therefore, you are saved. God deems one of the marks of our being saved as you are turning from sin. That, that you are recognizing there is ongoing sin in your life. And because you have been filled with the Spirit, you are repenting of that sin. You are feeling, and we'll talk about this in a moment, be, being sorrow over your sin. 
sorrowful over your sin. And you are asking God, the Holy Spirit, to help you put sin to death in your life. Can I pause and say something real quick? Uh, I was driving with Pastor Zay, and I, I mentioned to him that when we come upon narratives, we have to take what's given to us. And as I'm uh, journeying now through the, the doctrine of repentance, if you will, we may sit here and say, I know that. Give me something deeper. My friend, if you ever think that repentance is something that you have mastered and must move on to so that you can get into something deeper, then my friend, you do not first understand what it means to truly be saved. He said to me, there are no cookies and milk doctrines when we preach. It is all steak and potatoes. I said, I'm going to write that down. (laughs) He said, just make sure you told them that I said that, though. He got it from someone else, but we all did. Dear ones, when you have sinned, are you drawn to God? Or are you repelled by him? And do you run away? Believers run to God and repentance, seeking to be restored in a right relationship with God. Unbelievers, they run from him. And and not only do they run, they don't ever come back. We may run, but you will come back. The unbeliever runs and they never come back. Repentance simply means this. It means to turn around. In Hebrew, it's shuv. It is to turn back. It is to turn away from sin and turn to God. In Greek, it is metanoia. It is to change one's mind, to change one's direction. It is an acknowledgement that we have violated God's law, which produces, listen to this, godly sorrow. Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 7 and verse 10 that godly sorrow then leads to Repentance, because there is a sorrow that does not lead to repentance, but a godly sorrow turns you to God. You can feel bad about doing something dumb or doing something sinful, but to feel bad and then keep on living life as if it never happened and then do it again and again and again is different from godly sorrow. Godly sorrow, recognizing that it offends God, that you are turning to God and asking him to help you put that sin to death. This godly sorrow is described by one theologian as, listen to this, an an embittering of the soul. Your soul is vexed by your sin. Another theologian describes repentance as also uh, being spiritual medicine. Spiritual medicine. One says it is an embittering of the soul, while another describes it as being spiritual medicine. And they are both correct. For that is what repentance is or godly sorrow does it it does make your soul ache within when you sin against god and it is also medicine from god so that you may turn from that sin and be restored anew the puritan thomas watson thank you pastor zay for this on repentance defines repentance as a grace of god's spirit whereby a sinner is inwardly humbled and visibly reformed Inwardly humbled and visibly reformed. 
True repentance produces not only an embittering of the soul, of the fact that we have violated God's holy command, but an actual turning away from sin. And in some measure, there is, there is a striving with God's help to avoid that particular sin. Why? Because it is an offense to God. Sin involves, listen to this, seeing our sin, having sorrow or shame of our sin, confessing our, our sin, hating our sin, turning from our sin, and then ultimately turning to Christ who has covered our sin. Brothers and sisters, did that describe you? When we fail to obey God and his word. Do you see your sin or do you only see everyone else's? Do you hate and feel sorrow over your sin? Shame over your sin or does it not bother you at all? Do you confess your sin? Or will you be prideful enough to say, I ain't done nothing wrong. Do you hate your sin? Do you wish and pray that it is removed from your life? And do you turn from it? And do you turn to Christ? Because there is no other way that your sin can be atoned for than in Christ. And on this side of glory, on this earth, in this time, we will wrestle with sin. And oftentimes it may be the very same sin over and over and over again. But let this be known. Genuine repentance will involve some some true effort to turn away from those sins rather than remaining in those sins. This is evidence of of the Holy Spirit's work of sanctification in our lives. And sometimes, listen to this, it is right for our repentance to be or have a somewhat public element to it. Where are we getting that from? When, when Abram journeyed back to the place where he had previously worshipped God, was he alone? Was Abram alone? No. What did the scripture say? That he was with his wife Sarai. He was with Lot, which means that he was also with a number of traveling companions. They are all with him. We will see later that, that these companions are, are striving, so they need to separate. There is a group of people with Abram, and they are all following who? Abram, they are following him down and down and down. Therefore, his sin is not just affecting him. It's affecting those who are with him. Certain sins that are done in the light must be repented of in the light. Certain sins that have affected and had repercussions over or or, uh, have repercussions that affected others besides just ourselves. Those sins need to be handled in some kind of public way. Because you are not the only one affected. You are not the only one moved by the sin. Abram can't act like nothing's happened. Imagine that. All of this that has happened, and Abram's saying, all right, guys, let's just go. There must be a recognition that, yes, he has sinned against God. His sin has affected others. He's dragged his wife into this. He's dragged Lot into this. All of the companions from the north All the way to the south. He's brought them into trouble. And now he's being rescued by God. Abram may have cried out to God in a private way. But his public action. 
of returning to the place of worship, it's displaying before all that he has sinned and he is repenting of his sin. Because he has gone down from Egypt, the place, if you will, of sin, back to the place of worship. And he is acknowledging before all, I have sinned. I, we must go back. This public act of repenting was part of his restoration. Where there have been effects from our sin that have hurt others, we ought to make restoration to those people that we have injured or that we have wronged. Don't just say, well, I already asked God to forgive me. You have affected other people if you've done something publicly. And it is a part of our restoration. For those who have seen or been a part of my sin, I need to consider them when I repent. Husbands, wives, fathers, mothers, this is important for you when you sin. It not only affects you, it affects your families. Our sins need to be seen. Our families need to see us as not people who walk around as if we are perfect or even pretend to be. But we need to say to them, when we fail, I'm sorry. I shouldn't have said what I said. I shouldn't have done what I did. And to you, I apologize. You will establish in your kids' lives, in your wives' lives, in your husband's lives, you will establish for them a pattern of them seeing that you need the grace of God and they need the grace of God. When you say, I've sinned, I am sorry to God and I am sorry to you for what I have done. What a great blessing that will be in your kid's life. If they know as they are raised that mom and dad are not always right no matter what. Do you know someone like that? Are you a parent who no matter what you're right? Oh, I beg and pray that you show them a side of you that is so important. And my wife is looking at me like you preach it to yourself right now, I hope. That when you sin, you are quick to acknowledge your sin. When you fail, you are quick to acknowledge your failure. But, brothers and sisters, we do not limit that only to our families. We also extend that to our spiritual and eternal family, the local church. For when we sin in this local church, when we fail to obey the responsibilities and commands that have been given to us by God to one another, it is important that we don't act like nothing's happened. Hey, guys. That's wrong because I know what you did. You know what you did. It would be nice if we just said, listen, let's get it out there. I'm sorry. I I repent for my sin, for the way that I may have hurt or injured you. For it does not just affect one member. It affects all of the body. When one member suffers, we all suffer. Abram has repented and returned to the place of worship. He's returned to the covenant promises of God. And we are greatly instructed by this act of repentance for our own lives. Number two, this will be shorter now. The symbols in a believer's life. The symbols in a believer's life. Uh, Verse three. He being Abram went on his journeys from the Negev as far as Bethel. To the place where his tent had been at the beginning. Between Bethel and Ai. To the place of the altar which he had made there formerly. Abram's journey through the promised land. Was not just a matter of going back to the same places. 
Notice specifically where Abram returns. We said this in, in our previous point, verse 4, to the place of the altar. Now, Abram goes back to the place where he had made an altar. Brothers and sisters, what is the purpose of an altar? The purpose of an altar was twofold. Worship and sacrifice. Worship and sacrifice. As Abram goes back from the south all the way up to the north, through the promised land, Abram was returning to the promises of God, to the sacrifices of God. And what does he see? Now, if you can imagine this in your mind, what does he see as he travels northward? He wasn't driving, as you and I do. He's walking. What does he see as he travels, if you will, in reverse? He sees the land. What's significant about the land? The land has been promised to him by God. To give to him and his to, to his descendants. The Lord has caused this man who doubted the precious promises of God to walk all the way back home. 250 miles. And with every step, you can imagine he's being caused to be reminded that the feet that were touching this land had been given to him by God. As he walked, his eyes were forced to gaze upon every hill and every valley that God promised to give to him and to his descendants. Until he returns to the place where he had built an altar. And offered sacrifices. Notice. Abram does not try to make up for his sin by offering good deeds. This is not how Abram, or anyone for that matter, recovers from sin. Abram does not reason, I've committed three sins, so I'll perform 30 good deeds. Then I'll be restored. Then God will accept me back. My dear brothers and sisters, that's Romanism. That is Roman Catholic theology. We are justified by faith. Period. We are not justified by faith. And then depending on what you do or not, that will determine whether or not you are justified finally and get into heaven. You are justified by faith alone, period, in Christ. There is no good deed to be done in Abram's flesh. There is no penance to offer. Abram's repentance, restoration, and return does not depend on his own good actions, but upon what God has done and upon substitutionary atonement. Abram. Return to the place of worship, the place where he will offer a sacrifice. Why? Because Abram knows there is no remission of sins without the shedding of blood. When we sin, we cannot make up for our sin with good deeds. When we sin, we must remember that God has promised to forget our sins, to cast them as far as the east is from the west for Jesus' sake. What do we mean by that? Because of what Christ has done. And because you are in Christ. If you are not in Christ, then your sins will be held against you. But because you are in Christ, for Christ's sake, your sins will be remembered no more. And they are cast as far as the east is from the west. Jesus Christ was sacrificed on the cross in our place. To atone for our sins. We, like Abram, come back to the promises of God. 
and to the sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ. This is the very place where we start our Christian life. It's the very thing that saved us. It's the very thing that keeps us right now. And it's the very thing that will carry us to the very end. It is the gospel. It is not as though we are first saved and then it's up to us to keep up ourselves, keep, keep ourselves right with God. No. It is always through Christ who is the founder and perfecter of our faith. He will bring us to completion. Now, what do we mean by symbols in the believer's life? When Abram returns to the altar, it serves as a reminder of two things. Again, promises and sacrificial atonement. He's come back to the place where he first built the altar, calling upon the name of the Lord. He's come back to the place where he's offered sacrifices, displaying once again that there is no forgiveness without the shedding of blood. And there are certain things, signs and symbols that God gives to us to remind us of the promises of God and of Christ's sacrificial death. And what are those two things? In the New Testament, they are symbols that have been provided for us. They are baptism and the Lord's Supper. These are our two sacraments or two symbols that are foundational for we who are in Christ. And this is what we do in the church. God works grace in his people through the word of God as it is preached faithfully and correctly. And through the sacraments, through baptism and the Lord's Supper. This is how God works grace in his people or is, a, is how God provides means of grace for his people. And brothers and sisters, let me slow down as I say this. These symbols are essential to the believer's life. This is the very way that God calls his people to the right path, back to the right path, and how he keeps his people on that right path. We, we must never underestimate the importance of these God-given signs or symbols, sacraments. If you are a believer... Listen to this, and I want to say it very, very carefully. You need to be baptized, but not because baptism saves you. Because it does not. You need to be baptized because Christ exemplified it and Christ commanded it. It is an outward sign that we have been united to Christ. And it is a wonderful sign, a reminder of his promises. To bring us from death to life. You need to be baptized. And the Lord's Supper. Make the Lord's Supper a priority in your life. If you're a member. And you have not taken the Lord's Supper. You should fill a great void. There's a reason why we have the Lord's Supper in the evening. You know what, it, what the reason is? Because those who really understand the importance of partaking in the Lord's Supper in fellowshipping with Christ at his table and the means of grace that is there and the command that God has given us to partake in the Lord's Supper, they will come. They will be here. God has given these specifically appointed and approved sacraments as visible reminders that God has given Christ for us and that God has promised forgiveness of sins for all who trust in him. Baptism says it's all done once and for all. The Lord's Supper reminds us we need grace on a regular basis. That we must continue to come back to Christ. 
these two symbols, these two sacraments point us to how point us to how we are to think about Christ, the one who has done it all, the one who is continually giving us grace day after day. Just as Abram needed to come back to the altar, we need to come back to the Lord's table and to be reminded each time when we see baptism, as we will tonight, that we have our old man has been crucified with Christ and it is no longer we who live, but Christ who lives in us. Number three, and finally, <clears throat> the place of worship in the believer's life. So we've talked about repentance, the sacraments, and now the place of worship in the believer's life. We are following <clears throat> Abram's return to the promised land, to the covenant promises of God. Notice the very last phrase of verse four. And there Abram called on the name of the Lord. Abram engaged in what? Private worship or public worship? Public worship. If we are to go back to God, God has given symbols in the believer's life. Uh, no, let me say that again. If we were to go back to God, to the God-given symbols in the believer's life, we could ask this. What should we think about or what should we ask? Or what should we think about or what should we remember? Sorry. When we are looking for restoration. Let me say that again. What should we think about or what should we remember when we are looking for restoration? What should we think about and what should we remember? We just learned the answer. Think about, remember God's promise. What else? And Christ's sacrifice. Think about God's promise and Christ's sacrifice. Now, here's a follow-up to that question that you, you and I should consider. Where should we go? See that, where? Where should we go when we need to be reoriented or reset after we sin? We said, what should we think about? What should we remember? Now we're saying, where should we go? My dear friends, when we sin and desire restoration, this is God who puts that desire in us, by the way. We must go back to God. And where do we meet with God? We meet with God in the place of public worship. We meet with God in the place of public worship. Why, why do we say we meet with God in the place of public worship? We may say, I can meet God anywhere. This is true. You are able to fellowship with God in your own private time. But God has promised to meet with his people in a specific and unique way when his people gather in this context. In a way that you cannot, hope that I don't burst your bubble, in a way that you cannot meet with him when you're at home in your bed or in your so-called prayer closet. You are fellowshipping with God, but you are not fellowshipping with God in the way that he says he will uniquely meet with you when you gather with his people. Does that make sense? You may say, I've never heard that. Well, read your Bible. You'll hear it again. God has promised to you to uniquely meet with his people. In a special way that you cannot get any uh, anywhere else when you gather with the local church in this context. So God is with us right now. 
God is present with us right now. Where do we go? We must go back to the gathering of the saints in the local church. For it is in the local church and the gathering of the saints that our minds are reoriented to truth and where our eyes are once again fixed upon Christ. Consider the 73rd Psalm. The psalmist is is feeling great sorrow concerning the the wealth of the wicked, the prospering of the wicked. And his feet, as he says, are just about to stumble. He's despairing over the world uh, prospering. But before he loses his footing, he says, then I came into the house or sanctuary of God. And what happens? His mind was reoriented to the truth. His mind was reminded of the gospel. He was reminded that this life is not all there is. That there is an eternity to come. Until I entered the house of the Lord. It is in the worship of God that his thinking was corrected. It was in the house of God. In the gathering of the saints. In the hearing of the word proclaimed. That truth washes over our clouded minds. In the partaking of the Lord's Supper. In the hearing of the gospel preached, our minds are oriented, reoriented aright. It is in the public worship of God that we find love from the body of Christ. For we are here to help one another. We must not be, be gathering, uh, a gathering of self-righteous ones who act as though we do not have specks or even logs in our own eyes, but recognize that but for the grace of God go I. We are all desperately in need of the grace of God, and we are all desperately in need of being reminded of the gospel, not just today, every day. We need the church because we need one another to walk, oh, to in our walk with Christ, we need one another. We need to sharpen one another. We've spoken about this over and over and over again. The local church is the place where we take our eyes off of ourselves. And our eyes are once again focused and reoriented, refixed on Christ. Monday through Saturday, there are all kinds of things that we must and ought to do. Work, family, home, etc. But then we come to the church. And we are able to, by the grace of God, in, in more ways than we can explain, focus on God in ways that are more difficult throughout the rest of the week. This is the Lord's day. When we gather, we sing to Christ and our hearts. I loved hearing this singing this morning. Our hearts are turned to him and away from ourselves. When we come to the Lord, to the the gathering of of the saints, our eyes are turned from inside to outside, looking to Christ. The hymns focus to say words and think thoughts that we would not have thought on our own. It helps us to get our minds off of ourselves. Our time of worship reminds us that we are not to look within ourselves to find solace for our weary souls. But our comfort, our solace is found outside of ourselves in Christ. Friend, brother and sister, do you need to be reoriented this morning? Do you need to be recentered? Then gather with the saints. There you sing. There we make requests to God. 
There we hear God's word read and preached. We come to the throne of God in prayer. We fellowship with him at his table. You will find strength for your souls to press on as you sojourn through this temporal world. And it's very simple, isn't it? When we worship. I come from a background where you need to constantly be entertained. So there was videos and there was promos and let's get ready to run. And here's a whistle and start the music. Let's get it going. But not so. Here is it. We read God's word. We pray. We sing. We hear God's word preached. We partake of the Lord's Supper. And we fellowship and baptize. It seems non-entertaining, doesn't it? Yeah. If you're not a believer, it does. But if you are a believer, you're eating a filet mignon with a side of buttery garlic potatoes right now. And if you're anything like my family, you have to have a Shirley Temple. That's just 7-Up, Cherry 7-Up. And it is an oasis for you, is it not? You are reminded once again, hopefully. And then you come back in the evening after you have rested and hopefully uh, not rested too long so that you miss our evening worship. Hopefully you've eaten at the right place or eaten at home, preferably, so that you can be prepared to once again be refreshed anew so that you may go out into the world and be a witness for Christ. We don't just meet in the morning, saints. This is the Lord's day. We have been given the entire day not to fix our eyes on the new NFL season or on birthday parties or holidays that may fall on this day. It is first and foremost the Lord's day and everything else falls in line. We've been given this day both as a command and as a gift by God to his children. Command and a gift. Aren't you blessed right now? Aren't you glad for God's word? Then come back and receive more in the evening and also fellowship with him at his table. When we gather, we partake in that which will be ours eternally. When we gather, we are getting a taste of heaven as we gather with the saints. The gathering of the saints is most like the eternal state than any other moment or gathering until that day. Your birthday parties don't in any way, shape, or form resembles the, resemble the eternal state. Our, our gatherings around the television to watch sports, they don't in any way resemble anything close to the eternal state. Nothing in our lives, your workplace, though you may have good spiritual uh, conversations and relationships, none of those, all of those things pale in comparison to the gathering on the sa- of the saints on the Lord's day. Because on this day, we most often receive glimpse and taste of heaven that which is ours for eternity christ meets with his people on this day as his word is preached it is though and it, as it is preached faithfully it is as though christ himself was speaking to you when we partake of the lord's supper christ is there fellowshipping with you 
and we reason that we've had enough fellowship with him in the morning? Do you want to go to heaven? Then come back in the evening. It doesn't matter who's preaching. God's word is being preached. There's nothing special about my voice, my style. We are preaching God's word. You realize that our problem is that many of us, no, a small amount of us, we just don't believe that. We could say, I know I do. Then where are you? Gather with the saints. Return to the promises of God. Return to Christ. Go back to Bethel. Go back to the altar and see the sacrifice that Christ has provided for you and ask yourself, am I living in a way that, is, that displays that I have seen my sin, confessed my sin, hated my sin, turned from my sin and turned to Christ? Or is this just a Sunday morning religion to me? You may say, how can I return when I know what I've done? My friend, I say this again and again and again. There is more grace in God than there is sin in you. Your righteousness does not depend on you. Yes, you sin. But in God's eyes, you are a saint. Yes, you fail. But in God's eyes, because you are in Christ, you are victorious. We are saved by the righteousness of another, namely the Lord Jesus Christ. God is merciful, dear friends. Abram's story could have ended in Egypt. You realize that, right? And brothers and sisters, many who we know in my 38 coming up on 39 years of life and 39 years of being in church, we have seen a many stay in Egypt, remain slaves forever or Assimilate and become a part of that pagan community. But Abram's story doesn't end that way. And neither does yours if you are in Christ. God, who is rich in mercy, kept his promise to Abram that from him would come a seed who would crush the head of the serpent. And Abram would be a partaker in that covenant of grace. God brought Abram out of sin, back to himself, and he is doing the same for us, we who have trusted in his son, day after day. To God alone be the glory. Let us pray.